Hey, welcome to the Kindling Fire podcast. I have a very big announcement. My family and I, my younger two kids, and my wife and I are going to be joining Youth with the Mission as missionaries, and we're going to be leaving September the 27th. Um, uh, I've had people ask, uh, will the Kindling Fire continue? Yes, I plan to continue the podcast and the blogs and all the other things that I'm doing as best I can uh, as we are in training and then eventually going on to outreach. Um, if you would l- like to learn more about that adventure that my wife and I and family are taking, go to our website, Troy and Kathy with a K. TroyandKathy.com, or go to YouTube and subscribe to our Mangum Adventures channel. Okay, let's get to the podcast. That drivenness, unfortunately, worked really well for me in terms of external results. Uh, I would get promoted, I would have a larger team, I would get more done, and the problem with that over time is when you make your reputation and when you define yourself by what you do, well, the only way to be more is to do more. Hey, welcome to the Kindling Fire. My name is Troy Mangum. St. Ignatius said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Jesus said, it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. This podcast is here to bring God glory through you becoming fully alive and you bearing much fruit or having powerful results in your life. I believe you can use your unique gifts and talents to change the world. If you listen to this show and read our blogs, you will be inspired to take your own journey of faith to become a man or woman who is fully alive, making an impact in the world around you. I interview people that I think are awesome that are doing that today to inspire and to challenge you, you can do the same. Let's get rolling. Today on the Kindling Fire, I have the privilege of having Alan Arnold on the show. Thank you for joining. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Troy. Thank you. So Alan is an author, speaker, and he's currently overseeing the content and resources at Ransom Tart Ministries. For those that may know, that's uh, the ministry uh, related to John Eldridge. And you may recognize his voice because you oversee the podcast, which I have been listening to for years. So it's kind of exciting to have another podcaster on. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be here. So, um, Alan, you, uh, one of the things we're going to be covering is uh, your most recent book, The Story of With. And, um, it's, I'll just give a quick description of it. It's an allegory about creativity that fuses together elements of identity, imagination, intimacy, and creative fellowship with God and fellow bohemians. I love that last part, bohemians. That has a great imagery. And we're going to get into that. But before we get into that amazing work, uh, you have a story of kind of how, you know, You've been on your own journey to kind of come to the place you are today, being an author and working with Ransom Park. Can you share a little bit of that? Absolutely, Troy. I started out as a very driven, high, productive guy. I used to have a fortune cookie that I, the little saying that would come inside, taped to my desk. And it said, the one who says it can't be done should get out of the way of the one already doing it. 
And, and unfortunately, that was something that I tried to live my life by, meaning no matter what it is, I'll make it happen. And if there's 100 people in the room, I'll be the one guy left standing. I will be the one to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And that drivenness, unfortunately, worked really well for me in terms of external results. Uh, I would get promoted. I would have a larger team. I would get more done. And the problem with that over time is when you make your reputation and when you define yourself by what you do, well, the only way to be more is to do more. And, you know, the, the image that comes to mind is in the old black and white I Love Lucy TV show, the comedy uh, that ran in like the 1950s. There's this one episode with the chocolate factory conveyor belt. And Lucy and Ethel, their, their whole job is wrap chocolates as they go by the conveyor belt. But if one gets missed, they get fired. Well, slowly the conveyor belt starts to speed up and speed up. And what was super easy becomes a little more difficult. And finally, they're hiding chocolate in their pockets and in their hat and in their you know, uh, mouth because they can't let the supervisor see that they have become overwhelmed with this task. And so they try to hide it. And the supervisor in the scene of the show comes out and everything looks great because she doesn't see all the, the hidden messiness of the chocolate in their mouth and in their hat and in their pockets. And so her response is, speed it up. And that is the world's response when we become driven individuals who think the only way to be more is to do more. But boy, the enemy in the world at that point really get us because the only answer is do more, and now do more, and now do more. And eventually, the house of cards, everything we have hidden in our pockets and in our hat, it implodes because it's not sustainable. We were never meant to live that way. And at some point, either it quits working for us or we implode. And so, so that was my story. Yeah, so one of the interesting points that people can, I'm sure, relate to is when that quote unquote works at work, taking that same approach at home doesn't always work, has been my experience. Oh, right. It's, it, <laughs> it's, it's a disaster at home um, because, I mean, what, what you're trying to do there, if, if all of a sudden the only way to do more is to have more control. And it, control is an illusion. It's an illusion of control. But, yeah, when you try to take that mindset into the house and you've got young kids or your spouse and, and all of a sudden you're trying to make the home more productive and you're trying to get more done and more accomplished, uh, the home life is an inefficient life. And it's beautifully inefficient. <laughs> I, I should life. laugh, but I love that. <laughs> you know, we can really lean Six Sigma this house if you just give me the control. <laughs> Make this place. Oh, listen, I, I remember, Troy, when my kids were a little bit younger, you know, when they were uh, two, three, four, six, I can remember before I've gone through a lot of the transformation that I've gone through, I can remember this thought in my mind as a dad and even as a husband, which was, why do you guys keep doing things that create more work for me? Like, 
you've just, you know, like whether that's some, you know, something broken in the house or whether that's, you know, just somebody forgetting and leaving their phone somewhere, their key somewhere. You know, I had this thought of, I have to be the guy that keeps coming behind everybody and fixing things. And that's so inefficient. And if we would just quit creating problems, life would be so simple. And it was not obviously a good way to father or to be a husband. And for me, the way out of that, both at work and at home, was God showing me how to become a son. And becoming a son, his son, actually was the pathway to be a better father, was to learn to be a son. To be a better husband, it was learn first to how to be a son. And so the answer of the rescue for me has been one of God introducing me and taking me on a journey of sonship. Mm. So did you, uh, and you've had some time now to think about it, um, was there a, like a brokenness or a vow or a belief that really drove that drivenness in your life? I mean, how did you, have you looked back and said, you know, were you always a driven kid? I mean, you know. No, I really, I, I have looked back and no, I wasn't a driven kid at all. That, that was kind of the ironic part of my story is I didn't really care if I was first or best when I was all the way through high school and really college. And for me, it kicked in uh, when I got my first job out of college and I realized Boy, a lot of people around me aren't making it. They're they're being let go. They're they're not surviving. And I'm on my own. I'm I'm in Dallas. I have my own apartment. I have bills to pay. I've got to be the guy that makes it happen. And one Saturday, this is such a vivid memory. My boss's boss's boss. So three levels up. I was in a cubicle, and it was a Saturday, and not many people were there, and he happened to be there, this high-up executive, and I was in my cubicle working. And before he left, uh, he swung by and he said, hey, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, man, I'm getting stuff done and just trying to make things happen. And he nodded and walked off, and he said, oh, and, and he also said, what do you got going this weekend? And I said, well, my dad's coming in town to visit, but he's, he's alone at my apartment because I've got to get work done. And so he nodded, and then this boss's boss's boss comes back about an hour later on his way out, and he hands me a sealed envelope, and he said, hey, give this to your dad when you see him. Well, I had no idea, Troy, what it was like. It was very um, nerve-wracking because it was like, what, what is this? Because I don't even hardly know this man. And he had typewritten a letter and sent it, and when I handed it to my dad and he opened it, the letter basically said, your son is going to succeed in life because he's the guy that will work on weekends, work late nights, and he will put work above everything else. And that's the definition of success. Oh, and, and, my, and something when my dad saw that letter and, and um, you know, seemed pleased, um, my dad was a man of few words, but, but he was like, wow, you know, your boss's boss's boss is, is this is amazing and something in me at that point was like yep that's right and that's how i will succeed i'll always mm. be the hardest worker mm. the the fastest thinker and the make it happen person so the shift for me into that unhealthy way 
of seeing life really happen, maybe later than for some people. It happened when I was in my early 20s, but it became a way of life for the next 20 plus years. Yeah. And and, and talk uh, just really quickly, your former role, what was your former role at Thomas Nelson? Well, th- yes. The, the story I was talking about was I used to be in the ad agency world and advertising, but after that, I was at Thomas Nelson for 20 years, and the first 10, I was overseeing the branding, the marketing campaigns for all of the books, uh, a good bit of that time. And then the last 10 years, I became, uh, I founded the fiction publishing division. So even though the company was 200 plus years old, they had never had a dedicated fiction division. So I oversaw basically the creation of stories, over 500 stories. Yeah, yeah. So there's a story that you share about Craig McConnell um, interacting with you when you came over to Ransom Heart. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about, uh, about the being versus doing? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. can you share that story? That That is a very uh, poignant, poignant story. Yeah, when I, um, when I started... The Ransom Heart, Craig McConnell, he, he was already a friend, but he became one of my best friends. He was my supervisor. He was the sage. And he was a man who really understood what mattered in life. And when I started, he made the comment, Alan, we know you're a really productive guy, but we want you here for your presence, not your productivity. And that simple statement was one of the most disruptive things anybody could have said to me because I knew how to be productive. I didn't really know what it meant to bring my presence other than in a way that got something done. Yep. And so, and and ironically, when I had started into that fast-driven, fast-paced, high-productivity model after that letter from that earlier boss, one of the things I had been told at some point was, hey, Alan, people don't really care for your presence very much because you're such a hard driver, but you get things done, so they're staying with you because of your productivity. And so Craig's comment took that and flipped it on its head. It was the first time somebody said, actually, it's the opposite. We don't care if you get a lot done. We, you probably will. But we have you here because of who you are, not what you do. In other words, we want you to be rather than do as your priority and then let things happen from that place. So that it was a way God really shifted and reversed what had been spoken over me and who I was into the man and the son God was making me into. Yeah, that that's so speaks to the heart of you have value. Because you belong to God. You are a son. And the value is not tied to uh, productivity. Because I I certainly have had the storyline of trying to take that productivity model with God. You know, and, 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 and the Lord dismantled it completely out of just a lot of failure. And, and what he was communicating was, you are valuable. Just like God, it sounds like, was communicating to you during that season about sonship and how valuable sonship was. And it's sort of like, 
if I'm a dad, you have, you have kids. If I'm a dad and I have a son, it's not about how much you're going to get done if I love you or not. I love you. You're my son. Exactly. Exactly. And we, we know that on a certain level, but it's so hard to continually, consistently live that way. And I believe it's just because, every, you know, anytime you come into a, a setting where you don't know people, if it's a gathering or a party, one of the very first things people ask you is, well, what do you do? And rarely in those settings do people say, how is your heart? Or tell me about your deeper identity. And so we live <laughs> in a world, you know, that continually reinforces, whether consciously or not, your value is in what you do. Tell me, what do you do? And, and if the person at a gathering like that were to tell, you know, tell you, well, I'm a movie producer. I used to work with Steven Spielberg. That's going to get a different response than if somebody says, you know, I've been looking for a job for the last half year, and nobody really wants a guy that all, you know, all he knows how to do is kind of manual labor. Like, unfortunately, the response to the person hearing either of those stories is usually radically different because of what they do. So it is hard, even when we know that. And I think God has to disrupt our lives to teach us that as a loving father would with the son is I'm going to have to show you, unfortunately, sometimes through some painful things, because if I don't, you're going to keep believing this lie. Mm. And that, that was my journey was God taking me through a process of showing me what it really meant to be a son, not just the name, because, you know, in scripture, we always hear he's the father, we're the daughter, we're the son, but knowing it like from a mindset and living it from a heart shift is radically different. And that's, that's really been my journey for the past seven years. So I'm going to ask you one more question on this, in this topic about kind of the, the experience or the, uh, the flip between you're doing what you're doing at Thomas Nelson and how ransom heart was presented. Uh, and, and, because that had to be an internal struggle for you. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe you were so done, you're like, I'm done. <laughs> what out? No, no, no. I actually loved what I was doing. I loved overseeing story. It was a, it was a publishing division I had given birth to and had assembled authors I loved working with and a team internally I loved working with. And I, I love the power of story and the creativity of a good story. Mm. So I was actually in my sweet spot. And I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know, so I wasn't living as a son, but I didn't even understand what that meant. Right. So I was, I was in a position where when they called and said, John called and said, you know, Alan, I'd love for you to join the team. And I had been to several Ransom Heart events, loved his writing, the books, the, the, the conferences. But when he asked me on the phone, I just quickly said, hey, thank you, but no thank you. I, I, I want to keep coming to the events, but I, I love what I'm doing here. I'm good. And John said the greatest thing. He just paused a second and he said, hey, hey, that's fine, Alan. Um, totally fine. But before you hang up, here's the deal. We've been praying for a long time on this, and God's already told us you're coming. <laughs> and so you might want to talk to him a little bit and then get back to me because – He's already said you're coming. And I was just, I mean, speechless. I didn't know what to say. 
Um, it was the last thing I expected him to, res- how, to respond the back Trump to me. card down. <laughs> oh, and and hey, listen. After that, I started praying. You know, that night talking to God on my drive home and and with my wife, and we pretty much immediately knew. Yep, that is what God's doing. He is inviting us, and now we can either be the man or woman who says yes. And it was a, you know, and it, there was a lot of risk, and there was a lot of unknown with the job, um, moving across the country, um, shifting from corporate to ministry, um, new school, new church, new neighborhood, new everything. And we said we can either be the man or woman who says yes and jumps out of the plane, you know, and parachutes in, or we can rationalize why we're staying, dismiss it and kind of go on with our life, which was a pretty comfortable, relatively easy life. Mm. And obviously we, we decided to say yes and jump out of the plane. And um, it really was the start of not just a new calling, but it was the start of a journey for me of sonship, for my wife of daughterhood, in ways we never would have done or experienced if we had stayed where we were. So I said that was my last question, but I got one more on this topic, and then sure. and then we're gonna get in get into your story. Um, so the last one would be, uh, what would you say to people that are faced with that kind of uh, invitation from God, invitation in, that takes courage, it takes bravery, it takes faith, it takes a lot. What would you, what right. would you, because the people, you know, the Lord is always growing us and in doing that, sometimes comfort is not what he's saying is your end of the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say almost never is comfort what, what is God's priority or even his real concern. I mean, it's, we don't grow very much in comfort, um, and, and I don't mean by that that God wants us uncomfortable, but I just mean his primary concern is far more than how comfortable we'll be. I think what I would say to people, Troy, is you'll only know um, what God's inviting you into if you have conversational intimacy with God and a relationship with God where you have learned to hear his voice where you spend time with him, where you uh, actively and intimately are experience him on a daily basis. Because here's the thing, open doors, like, yes, God can open a door, so can the enemy. God can close a door, so can the enemy. A closed door may be God's way, not of you walking away, but of him saying, hey, I want to actually show you how to open and pick the lock on a closed door. Amen. So don't walk away. Actually stay here. An open door may be the most disastrous thing to do. So I hear people all the time say, well, yeah, I'm kind of stuck in my job. I don't like it. Um, so I sent out three resumes and two came back. No one came back. Yes. And that's, that's just gotta be the Lord's will. And so we're going. And a lot of times that's a disaster because they never ask God if he opened that door. It was, it, was, it was almost the way an agnostic or an atheist would approach something, which is I sent out three you know, resumes. One came back and said, yes, we want you to. Said no, let's go with the yes. 
And that's not living by faith, and that's not stepping into mystery with God. And, and so what I would say to people is, if you feel like God's stirring a new chapter, the two biggest questions are, God, what are you up to here? You help interpret this for me. And two, what is the timing? When? Because sometimes God may be stirring something that's two and a half, three and a half, five years before it's time to make that step. And so if you quit your job tomorrow from the initial stirring and then wonder where's God, well, God didn't really tell you to quit your job. That was, that was you, you know? And so those are the ways I would approach it. It's like a son or daughter with a father. Okay, God, how would you interpret this? I feel restless. What does that mean? What are you inviting me into? Okay, when are you inviting me into it? And when you walk that way, your story becomes this adventure with God that you're not trying to control, that you're not trying to make happen, but you're actually letting him take the lead and you're constantly looking to him for the next step. It's an expectancy of, what do you have for me today, God? And, and the very job somebody may want to leave because, let's say, their boss is really hard to work with. Well, on a human level, it may look like the only options are I stay, and it's horrible, or I go, and I find something else. And God may have 50,000 different options. He can see in, you know, 4D what we can see in 3D at best. He can see new colors that we don't know. He has new chess moves that we don't even know exist on the board. And so the answer actually may be God's going to change that boss's heart, and he's going to turn out a year later to be the best boss you've ever had. Or maybe he does want you to move. Or maybe he wants you to stay, and he's doing something with refining you. You'll never know if you don't engage and ask conversationally, God, let's talk. What, what's going on? You interpret my heart, the situation, what's best for my family. And that makes it, 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 it makes it exciting because the pressure is off us to control our story or try to control it, and we get to step in to what God knows. I didn't know when I moved to Colorado that the journey of sonship would come. I just knew God was saying, yes, I'd like you to do this. Will you go? And when we went, then little by little, God unveiled all kind of additional reasons for us to be here. But if I had held out on the front end until God laid down all the cards, we never would have moved. I'm going to pause the conversation right there and pick it up next episode. See you then. If you've been encouraged and inspired by the show and you would like to know what else we've got going on, go to thekindlingfire.com. There you can join the Firestarters, which is a Facebook Messenger community I let know first anytime I do anything. You can also get a book there called you can certainly do it that I've written to really encourage you to take your first steps to really start the small fire that God's starting in your life. Uh, in addition to that, you can sign up for the seven-day Bible devotional, Become a Sign and Wonder. And as always, be awesome. Hey, if you like the podcast and you want to show us some love, we're on Instagram at The Kindling Fire. Uh, go follow us there, and I put some cool stuff in the Insta stories, and uh, it would be cool to interact with you there. So just a reminder, follow us on Instagram, and be awesome.